And so we might say this is an experience of the void. You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we work to make sense of the borderlands of digital media, culture, and politics. My name is Josh Chapdeline, and my co-host is memeticist Dr. Jamie Cohn. This is a special audio-only version of our virtual salon with award-winning author and CNN contributor Michael D'Antonio. And, you know, I, I do keep going back to this experience of Trump explaining to me that you just have to be more extreme. Mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't really matter what the knock-on effect may be, that if you want attention tomorrow, you have to be more extreme than you were yesterday. We would like to thank our friends at Civic Hall for co-producing this virtual salon with us. For more information about our upcoming events, podcasts, and workshops, make sure to head on over to digitalvoid.media. After the election, many of us were left wondering, what comes next in the United States at the borderlands of media, internet, and politics? How will our digital technologies continue to shape national sentiment? I'm pleased to welcome two people who are most qualified to speak about these questions. Dr. Jamie Cohen is a digital culture expert and a writer, speaker, educator, and producer. He founded a new media degree in higher education, wrote a textbook on the subject, and is the co-author of the first peer-reviewed paper on Pepe the Frog. Michael D'Antonio is a Pulitzer Prize-winning author who has published more than a dozen books, including Never Enough, a 2015 biography of then-presidential candidate Donald Trump, and is the co-author of the recently published High Crimes, the Corruption, Impunity, and Impeachment of Donald Trump. Jamie, Michael, thanks so much for taking the time tonight. Thank you, Josh. Thank you so much for that introduction. And thank you, Michael, for being here. Really wonderful that you're here. So today, what I want to go over, this is this, unfortunately, I don't think we have enough time to go over every single thing I personally would like to cover. However, I do think that it was it's important to talk about these things. And there's no real better person to speak about it with than you, Michael, because you your longitudinal history and knowledge of media politics and specifically Trump are really going to be beneficial to this conversation. So we really appreciate your time here. So thank you so much. And I know we'll have a lot of questions from the audience. I want to be uh, understand they can participate as well with all of that. Um, well, first, I want to quickly just go over um, some a, a brief intro question that I may have for you. Uh, and uh, first, I would like to preface this with an article that came out just earlier today from George Packer in the uh, in the Atlantic. And George Packer wrote an article that uh, was said that was titled, The Political Obituary of Donald Trump. And in it, it was a fairly optimistic uh, article because he basically admits that in the end, democracy will be able to survive beyond what has happened or the damage that has been created. Um, The idea behind that though, is that I was, I, I think there was a few things in there that he had mentioned that I wanted to bring up first. One is first, we're all aware of the extraordinary incompetence uh, in regards to the handling the COVID uh, pandemic. And that's killed literally a quarter of a million of his own citizens. Second to that is his literal disregard of the earth we literally live on. But I think what was most important, the thing that I, we're gonna speak about tonight is 
the, the statement that Packer states about the fact that he's made 25,000 false or misleading claims in the course of his presidency. That is extraordinary for any type of speech or communication behavior, but no less from a president, a person who's elected to run the government. So first, I think what we want to start with is Trump and the media and the campaign. And I think uh, an overall concept of what we'll be discussing is about how the media is complicit in this. So from your knowledge and your history, what are the roles that Trump and the media are interacting with at this current time? Well, I think the observation that he lied so much and and that was remarkable and uh, perhaps unique in our political history is, you know, it's almost quaint to even bring it up anymore. This this fact was astounding when it was 5,000 lies and it was amazing when it was 10,000. But I think by the time we reached 15 and 20,000, it was very much baked into how everyone thought about Donald Trump. And, you know, it also was baked into how the media responded to him and, and to how everyone participated in this process of observing him, sort of observing the observers. You know, the firsthand observers would be the journalists and reporters and television production people distributing the lies. And then even thinking about ourselves as we responded as citizens. So I think what was revealed was that uh, Trump's long-held belief that the press doesn't care if it's true as long as it captures attention turned out to be accurate, mm -hmm. you know, and that he revealed to the world, and I think to some degree to journalists themselves, that this process is somewhat broken, that uh, a media environment that rewards attention and monetizes attention is inherently vulnerable to uh, attention achieving liars. So, mm -hmm. and, and that's what he's been his whole life. And he discovered that very early that it didn't matter if he told the truth. If he told a really great story and people enjoyed it, he benefited from it. And so now we're, you know, I had this conversation with an editor today and she said to me, you know, your life is going to be much quieter. And I agreed and, and said that it's a big adjustment because, you know, as a human being, I got a lot of attention for being a person who talked about how outrageous Donald Trump was. And if I said more outrageous and inflammatory things about how bad Donald Trump was, I would get more attention. Yeah. And you know that attention sort of feels good. And now everybody is accustomed to this level of, of fury and sound and attention seeking that we see on our screens. And I think there is going to be a void, uh, you know, a, a sense of what do we do now? Mm -hmm. um, but it's a healthy thing for us to be confronted with it. Yeah, I think you and I spoke a few months ago, or maybe even at the beginning of the, the presidency, and something that I often like would actually mention to students who were in different, different a variety of ways of interpreting what had happened. And I, I brought this up in when I, when I spoke at Salzburg too, is that it was very possible that his 
engagement with the the how do he operate a democracy and one of one of the things we recognized was that most of democracy runs on honor and sort of a a code that it that allows it to, to do certain things and so he doesn't really so to speak done so he hasn't done as much illegal as we imagine but he's actually missed he's actually exposed what america might actually be underneath it all and an al jazeera article recently posted is Donald Trump America? And, and that is kind of like what an exploit that he had figured out by being in this long-term uh, role of not just being the character he presents himself, but actually being someone who had been produced, someone who is within the production space, someone who's a medium, more media mastermind than a money mastermind, as we found out from the New York Times tax. But that it seems to be that that's where his actual goals and operations were. And it's it really fascinating to me that like, the complicity of media happens to also be part of that. And we've always known that, that since the double ticker post 9-11, that invention of spectacle and the need to always watch is always part of it. So it's not like he was not aware of how those things operated. But it was interesting to me to think about how the media's responsibility in democracy is actually part of that as well. And one of the things that I wanna ask you then is, so let's just say he's aware of his, he, I'm, I'm positive he's aware, but let's just say he announces his re-election for 2024 on Joe Biden, Biden's inauguration day. How do you think the media should cover that? Well, I, I'm reminded of uh, when Reagan had his inauguration and the hostages were freed from Iran on the same day. Mm -hmm. And there was sort of a split screen showing these people I think they were getting off a plane at the time that um, Reagan was being sworn in. And in that instance, that was very legitimate news. Um, the hostage crisis had essentially ruined Carter's presidency and assured that Reagan would be elected. And it was probably one of the first instances where this kind of question had to be dealt with. I, corresponded last night with someone uh, on Anderson Cooper's show because he had given a monologue about how he wanted to ignore Trump and that yeah. this was no longer going to be of interest. And I thought that that was a brave thing to say. And I think that he means it when he says he'd like to ignore him. But if he declares uh, that he's running for president, in the same moment that Joe Biden is being sworn in, that too is news. So, so I would I would argue for not using the split screen. Don't mm -hmm. don't give him equal weight because it isn't momentous in that way, especially since it's being telegraphed now. But that ticker that you mentioned could be used for it. You know, it could be a, a message could go out to viewers that at this moment Donald Trump is doing this. Uh, but one thing that the press has learned to do is to say, not only that something is happening, but why it's happening. And mm -hmm. so part of that should be, you know, in an effort to upstage uh, President Joe Biden, former President Donald Trump moments ago announced he was running for president in 2024. The next line should be, as of this date, it's uncertain whether this is a genuine and sincere announcement. The next line could be, this is likely a fundraising gambit. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're now 
have learned, and Trump has taught this to us as well, that we have to just call out what's happening. You know, so name what's going on in the moment that it's happening, um, but do the duty of sharing the news event as as well as you can. Yeah, context matters. I mean, giving color, it seemed to be that the reductionism of the mid the mid teens happened to be a very long lag until most recently. I would say, literally within 2020, when we realized that media itself can be harmful to both citizens and their health, but also like their mental health. And we discovered this, I think, when the lockdown happened and people were not able to encounter an objective reality. They were only able to be within their cloistered spaces. So they were only consuming media that was delivered through them through the filter of whatever the media systems decided would be downstream from it. And it created a bifurcated, now a try, a split when Newsmax and OAN starts of these different media ecosystems or ecosystems. They're only, they're completely different realities that are coming downstream. And it isn't really new, but it is definitely more uh, obvious now that the responsibility of the media is to the overall safety and health of the people. Because even when we noticed a couple months ago when Mark Zuckerberg decided after 16 years of running his site that we no longer should be hosting Holocaust denial information on, on Facebook. And that's a site of responsibility that those things are intensely and overwhelmingly dangerous to a society. And those types of things should definitely be like acknowledged as something that is shifting, that we're actually getting more context and color. And I think that is far more important than uh, what, we, what we, we had seen. But I want to go back a little bit to just how, how Trump actually does these types of things. And I want to ask you from your own personal experience of, of meeting with Trump, of talking to him, and how much of this plays out. And I, as, as so, as I've studied internet media for many, many years. I, I often look back at the historical timelines of how we ended up at this moment. And I always look back at the point where, um, well, we'll talk about media martyrdom. Let's talk about it that way. That it, to be a victim of the media is something that is a tangible experience by Trump and the supporters. And I think it all the way goes back to a show called The Simple Life, <laughs> where Paris Hilton and um, Nikki and they, Nicole, they went out and basically made fun of Midwesterners. They, they reduced that down to an entertainment franchise. When Trump ran for office, he played the role of that. And there's an overused meme that is still to this day being used of, the, of a, a trope that says, he's actually after you, but he's, they're actually after you, but he's standing in the way, meaning the media is after you. So in terms of media martyrdom, it comes down to the idea that you're always a victim of this. Now, is this a game that's being played? Because he's well aware of, his, the, of Mark Burnett's construction of Trump as a character. And so he plays this role. So is he aware of the followers or is this something he actually believes in, in terms of a, a reality? No, I don't think he believes it at all. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that he is extremely cynical in all of this. Um, and one reason why I think this is just in the time that I spent with him, there'd be moments when I would actually push back against something crazy that he had said. And in one instance, it was about birtherism and whether Barack Obama had been born in Hawaii or not. And he started doing his usual jive about how he had sent investigators there and 
um, they were still working on this. And this was years after he initially said he was. And I started to tease him. And I said, you know, those investigators have been there an awful long time. And I know you hate to spend money. You know, are you getting your money's worth from those guys? And, you know, maybe we should warn all their other clients that they're not very good investigators because they've been at it for years and they still can't tell whether this guy has been born in the United States. And he started to laugh. And I said, so you know this is ridiculous. And he kind of said, yes, it is ridiculous. But then he said, it's working. And within moments, he went back to saying, oh, no, I believe it. I believe that, that uh -huh. he may have been born someplace else. And mm -hmm. he's secretly Muslim. And so he's committed to the act and very much believes that he has to maintain the pose forever, sure. um, but he knows that it's a lie. And yeah. so, so the thing with the fundraising that he's doing now, it, all of these lawsuits and the way that he's manipulating the Republican Party to deny that Biden is the president-elect, it's all about draining the bank accounts of the people he's sending fundraising messages to at a rate of you know, a hundred a day. Yeah. And this is the old televangelist model where if you can get a million people to send you five dollars, you know, you've made five million dollars with that fundraising appeal and um they're gonna tune in tomorrow and then you can ask them again. And I think this is his real purpose is just to um be powerful, be as wealthy as he possibly can. He's got a debt of 400 million coming due in a few years and nobody else is gonna give him money. So <laughs> he's doing this retail fundraising. So then what, let's, let's talk about another possibility then because there is the other possibility of Trump TV. And in 2016, Jeremy Gordon of the New York Times wrote an article, Is Everything Wrestling? And in that article, he actually <laughs> used Trump as the main uh, idea of that is that, and now it's kind of like a meme that everything is wrestling, but he he mentioned that what wrestling did to the discourse of media in general and, and the way that stories are told on TV is when they acknowledged that they were an entertainment system, they had to do that legally. But what they also recognized was they created a new model of television production, which he says is, quote, staged managed reality, scripted stories that bleed re finally into the real events. And so that type of model and knowing that Trump himself was really proud prided himself on being on many of those shows. Do you think he he absorbed some of that storytelling? And do you think he needs a producer? Do you think a lot of his failings are the fact he doesn't have a an overall producer? He used to have a slogan uh, that belonged to NBC, so he couldn't continue to use it. But I think the lack of characterization happens from no one's giving him his script anymore. So now he's merged reality with his entertainment sake, but he doesn't really have his producer anymore. I think that's a good point. I think he needs help. You know, Mark Burnett was very effective. Uh, when you hear about how he behaved on set for The Apprentice, I think he was often lost. Um, he delivered his lines, but he made it difficult for the people directing and producing to efficiently get the show on the air. So obviously he needs assistance, but he's also, you've got to give him credit for his skill as a dramatist. Everything has a cliffhanger. Um, 
everything is larger than life, you know, very, very theatrical, very dramatic. And he's willing to be extreme um, in a way that is guaranteed to bring in an audience. But I, I also think you've got to keep going back to this idea that a lot of people are in on the joke um, or halfway in on it, but to some degree feel included. So if you're a supporter and you go to a rally, you're thrilled to be the one providing the applause for him because that gives you a role to play and it feels very immediate and very active and, and powerful in a way that you might not otherwise feel in your life. And I, I think that we're so accustomed to reality on our screens that it doesn't matter that it's produced and it doesn't matter whether it's reality in terms of unscripted and, and we're seeing it as it happened or whether it's mediated and edited and manipulated to entertain us. None of that really, I think, is a consideration anymore. It's just how you feel in response to what you're seeing. And in this case, people feel, those who support him, very excited, very validated, um, and to some degree, uh, they're able to sort of join him in confronting the media elite and people that one might imagine look down on them. And yeah. you know, so that gets back to your martyr uh, model. You know, this idea of Trump always has to be a winner and his folks became winners by attaching themselves to him but that the minute that they lost, then all of a sudden they're martyrs. So they're not losers. They're people who have been vanquished unfairly and turned into symbols of the unjust world that still doesn't understand them and still doesn't include them. And you know, to take it even another step further, underneath it all, there's some truth to that. So if, if you're a person who's struggling um, either with your sense of identity or your status or your economic condition, whether you have a job or access to health care or feel respected, um, maybe you don't ever feel respected. You know, I think you have some reasons to feel resentment and some reason to bond with Trump as he expresses that resentment for you. Yeah. I'd like to build off of what you said with the extreme though. On the other hand, that is, that works, all of that works in a very controlled situation, a, a very managed rally-esque type of state where everything is staged, built, presented, the charisma is palpable within the community, and then it works. But when you unleash that into like a community or like just the disparate groups, hate accounts on Instagram have amplified that to the grift, to the point where they know they're, I'm almost 100% positive, many of those Instagrammers are well in on the grift. Because they know that the only way to keep their income coming from endorsement deals or whatever is through keeping up the energy. People have to keep coming to the site. They have to keep looking at the memes. Otherwise, there's no real use in it. So the meme, the idea of the disenfranchised person, which is just a, a nice buttery coating on racism in many cases, but that, that type of thing can be amplified to an extent where they just wait. And so this is the, the thing I've been working on for years is where that, where that waiting or that meta behavior takes place, that time that takes between feeling like a victim and then being victimized. And 
The moment that I always look at as the most extreme turning point for this was that January 2019 Covington Kids event, where the news media was, on the other hand, the news media was sitting there and waiting to pounce. They were waiting for an incident. It could have been any incident. It happened to be that incident. And so those teenagers wearing those MAGA hats were very clearly, you know, their teenagers not behaving well, but they're also wearing a meme on their head. That, that hat, I always say, is that's not a hat. That's Senapaun hat. Well, I don't I can't say a hat in French. But the, the idea of that is that's an idea that they're wearing. They're creating a statement. And the media used that, and they went after it. To this day, I can't really locate a more radicalizing event for many people who really felt they were martyred by the media, that they were never looked at as equal. But I think, and I want to ask you about this, I think what they don't acknowledge or realize is that they're not fighting against the media systems, but they're really trying to expand the Overton window to their benefit. And that Overton window to their benefit means a, they want the media to be racist too. And that is not part of our discourse that should be ever engaged with, that, but they believe that the First Amendment should incorporate that. So where is that balance, that meta balance between what they want TV to do and not TV to do <laughs> and know that they work together? So it's, it sounds like you're saying that you saw with these kids who had the MAGA hats on and were shown to apparently be harassing a Native American man. Um, but later it turned out that what the television portrayed wasn't accurate. They sued and actually got settlements from CNN and others. Um, over the story that was told about them, which turned out not to be true. Mm -hmm. um, and so then the question becomes, uh, they provoked the coverage of their incident to some degree by putting on the hats that day. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, if I buy a MAGA hat or I put on the back of my pickup truck, you know, I don't give a fuck about your liberal tears. <laughs> You're trying to provoke something happening. Mm -hmm. But then if the media in this case rises to the provocation and delivers to them the unfair treatment that they want to prove is out there, you know, if they want to prove that the media is elitist and against anybody who supports Trump and they can get someone to do that, then they've prevailed. Um, so this is all, I think, in a way, a game. Yeah. And it was a game that was played by those kids. So, and it's a game that's played by Donald Trump. It's a game being played by everyone who says, you know, um, our liberty and freedom is at stake and we must act to defend it. So I think today the... Republican Party in Arizona uh, briefly posted a message that appeared to call for violence related to overturning the result of the election. Mm -hmm. And they suddenly took it down because they realized that it had gone too far um, because there are people who will act out violently, who will take a automatic weapon across state lines to Kenosha and shoot people. Exactly what I was bring up. Uh, because they've been mobilized by this speech. And so, you know, and I do think that this is where Trump 
also plays at a game that's so dangerous and in a way that he's willing to go further than anybody else. And, and he teaches everybody that this is a constantly escalating process. And I, I don't know what the answer to any of this is because it's really provoked this showdown between free speech and democracy or free speech and public safety. Um, it's, we're way past the time when the ACLU um, sued on behalf of the Klan so that they could march in Skokie. Right. Um, so this is just threatening to whether we can get along at all and, and share reality and solve society's problems. I mean, if you even look at the COVID response, I think only 40% of Republicans say that they would trust a vaccine. Now, this is a vaccine. Some of the versions of it are developed by the president that they voted for, right. you know, by the Warp Speed Project, and he's taking credit for it, but they don't want to take it. Um, and it's because people don't share a, a sense of the same information being valid, and, right. and trust is completely obliterated. And you know, I I do keep going back to this experience of Trump explaining to me that you just have to be more extreme, mm -hmm. and it, it doesn't really matter what the knock-on effect may be. That if you want attention tomorrow, you have to be more extreme than you were yesterday. That's right. Um, but that's that is a rabbit hole that we now see where its outcome is. Now we see not only Arizona's the official account of the Arizona GOP calling for violence. And downstream from that is the valorization of Rittenhouse from Kenosha. I mean, that the, the meme lords, the edge lords, and the, the shit lords of, of the hate channels valorized him. And I, I brought this up the same way those Covington kids didn't have to be those kids. And it didn't have to be that moment. Rittenhouse did not have to be that moment. But it's the idea of the valorization becomes an odd moment because then it goes beyond what we'd assume as just an action of violence and death, but also the, the belief in that. And that's down in the, the anti-Semitic QAnon movement. And so now, just recently, I think it was yesterday, Jared Holt mentioned that Trump is yet one again, once again tweeting QAnon accounts on his Twitter. And that's like a that's a dangerous dabbling. You know, that's a that's a touching that or getting close to that proximity isn't just acknowledging or or uh, making real a cult or cult-like behaviors but actually empowering it. And that type of empowerment is something that as a sitting president, I don't think is in any way, nobody actually knows how to deal with that. And I think there, we've seen that many of the GOP in that article by Washington Post, where it was like the majority of the GOP won't acknowledge Joe Biden as president. That doesn't assume a full on, we're supporting Trump's anti-democratic behavior, but it does assume a feeling of maybe it's better for me if I don't say anything. And so it's like, if Q becomes an empowered movement, at the same time, there's no real spine within a GOP pushing back. What comes next? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think there's a big debate going on now among people who are concerned about what comes next. Um, some of whom think that uh, there has to be a brutally assertive and aggressive, continuous condemnation of all of this um, 
by as many people as possible. You know, th this is the theory that says that Trump brought something evil out of the muck and mire and into the, the mainstream of, of American public life and that it has to be driven back down into the muck. You know, mm -hmm. so if you come from that perspective, you think that all of that speech has to be confronted and criticized and the people who uh, share it need to be humiliated. Um, it, and it, you can't let up. You know, and there's another side to this, I think represented more by the incoming Biden folks who are saying, you know, we want to be profoundly boring and profoundly normal and try to be open to everybody and listen as much as possible. You know, there's this sort of uh, turn the other cheek idea that um, people can be brought into civilized discourse uh, through uh, being heard, you know, that that it's it's unfair to just dismiss and punish all of yeah. this. You know, and I don't know what I prefer. There are moments in each day when I would embrace both of those ideas, where I've just had it with being afraid of these people and would like to just um, be as aggressive as possible and criticize them with every, uh, breath that I take. And then there are other times when I think, well, that is just endless war. Right. You know, so are we going to just fight with each other from now until we're all exhausted and a newer, younger, saner generation arises to take this over? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it's a really disturbing um, thing that we're left with now in the wake of Trump. I don't think that what he unleashed is going away, I, I, I don't even think it's gonna diminish very much. I, I think it's still gonna be 45% of the population. I happen to agree with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, don't, I, I think at this point, it's a generational issue. I think this is something that it's now going to stick around with us for at least a generation because of its embedded nature from parent, parents to children. And it's really hard to disengage from that. And, one of the things that I think we have to acknowledge, because I don't really have a, a good solution to that either, because I, I see multiple outcomes. I see Trumpism becoming a populist movement that's a third party. I see Q either becoming a religion or a cult that becomes formalized. But I also see it as like uh, the way that uh, when we do CVE, when we counter violent extremism, that bringing it out to the sunlight also does work. People don't like to be acknowledged as racist in public. And oftentimes by exposing them in public, it, it dismantles that systems or, or attempts at a process of deprogramming in real time. But either way, any of these things that I'm mentioning are, are fairly dangerous outcomes for a downstream of, of now. I think I have two more questions. And if everybody has questions, please put them in the, uh, the chat below so we get to those right after. Um, but there's one thing that's embedded within all this discourse and something that we started with, with the 25,000 false or misleading statements is how do you deal with the, I mean, it's when it comes down to truth, these are extraordinarily and extremely wrong people. Like they're, they're just wrong. It's, it's, it's infactual. It's unreality. Do we need another word for misinformation? Do we have not the language to deal with this? Boy, um, <laughs> I don't, I don't think we need new words. I, I think it's okay to say that something's a lie or that something's not true. I, I think that people need to hear 
that a president or a political leader is sharing something that's untrue. And if it's dangerously untrue, as um, some of these ideas around uh, coronavirus are dangerously untrue, I think that needs to be shared. You know, the amazing thing about what's going on with the coronavirus is that, uh, and it's sort of a, a microcosm of what we've been discussing all along, is a lot of the spikes now are in communities where people went out to say, I'm not gonna wear a mask and I'm not going to heed any of the social distancing recommendations because I don't trust you people. And I don't think that your recommendations work at all. Mm -hmm. And so they go out without heeding the recommendations and then the cases go up right where they're going out ignoring the recommendations and that becomes proof to them that they were right in the first place that it doesn't work that the experts are wrong they don't put together the fact that i'm the one making it not work what they're saying is well see the cases are still rising and you've had all these restrictions in place so it must be bs right um so you know there's a whole additional problem of whether people have learned how to take in information and weigh it and test it and ultimately whether they are educated in ways that allow them to participate in a complex society and in complex debates. And I know that in policy circles, a lot of what people are talking about now is how um, this may not get better until um, wages and education levels for people in the lower and, and middle class segments of society improve. Right. So if people feel less desperate about the moment to moment, they'll have more time to think about, read, reflect on what's going on around them, and they'll be less attracted to this kind of extreme rhetoric that says, don't trust anyone. Right. But I think that's that has a very short lifespan, you know, and that's that's the energy I was talking about with the meme lords, is that they know that their grift is a time. It's I think the biggest fear is that how long can you keep energy going, and the outcome is really, really difficult with that because if you in, in empower the energy, it creates violence and then it all gets shut down anyway, and if you don't empower the energy, then you have to admit that you're running a grift. So there's like there there's a fine hairline that that I think everyone is walking at this point. But I also do believe that this isn't something that just goes away by like pretending it's normal or we're back into a typical political situation. It means we have to, I think we have to encounter it almost directly in many ways. Yeah, I think moment by moment, I think the people that we know who are thinking and promoting dangerous ideas or who have who say to you well i saw on facebook that this and that is true and that anthony fauci is really a communist and um this is the china virus that was developed in a laboratory and um loosed to defeat president trump you know when someone says that to you you sort of have to say well i don't think that that's true and yeah. You should, yeah. You have to encounter it directly. I mean, that's. It seems to me like that's the the most important thing you could do. Otherwise, you're somewhat 
giving them validity and giving them power to believe in an untruth. Well, one of the things that I think is really difficult in all of this though, is that um, often when you confront someone face to face or confront yeah. this idea or this set of ideas, you meet coming back at you a kind of brutal response mm -hmm. that, that can be scary. You know, so um, it's almost pleasurable for some of these folks to frighten you, to threaten violence, to um, behave almost like a barbarian. You know, this yeah. is this is the scary thing for people who want to be thoughtful and, and want to have a conversation is that it may be that you're trying to have a conversation with someone who'd really like to just punch you in the face. Yes. Yeah. And that's in a, in a political ideology that's based on trolling. I mean, that's that, I think that's the first thing that we, that I've been trying to inform people and we'll go to audience questions right after that is this is that the, the ideology is actually trying to mess with the other side. There's no real depth to it. So that's the thing that I think we have to learn first this way that the armor can be built and then the, the, the expression, because I think, and it's to no offense to the majority of people, but it's a lot of people aren't aware of that reality that's truly underneath it. It's the, it, taking it a, as, as I forgot who it was, I think it was actually Doug Rushkoff recently on Duncan Trussell, he said that the metaphor became real for many people. And that we can't understand that, then we can't actually get to them. So that's like the first bridge to cross is that we have to acknowledge that the world, the world is very complex and confusing and we have to do our best to interpret it. Yeah. Josh, do you want to give us some questions? Yeah, we'll go to audience registration questions at first. And we have one audience member who is particularly interested in whether or not Twitter should cancel Donald Trump's Twitter account after January 20th, and what relevance will Parler play in that decision? Well, so uh, canceling his account would sure improve his martyr status, wouldn't it? I mean... Yeah. It's it's another one of those situations where um, he's playing a game that he wins either way, you know. So if he continues to be disruptive and destructive and dangerous on Twitter and gets away with it, then he's energizing his base that way. And if he's made into a martyr um, by being kicked off, then I think. The other platforms, and I guess Parler is the one that's viable right now, they're going to explode. You know, the the guy who ran, runs um, Newsmax is mm -hmm. uh, you know, a person that I deal with on occasion. And, you know, he's one of these characters who's very polite and really kind of interesting to talk to, but he's also um, ruthless about exploiting whatever rhetoric is out there to make money. And so he didn't, his network didn't call the race for Biden for weeks on end because he was stealing audience from Fox News. And, you know, so I think that he's going to benefit from this martyrdom. He'll become maybe the new network of the, the lost cause and maybe those who reject Trump won't get anything for it. You know, so I don't know, you know, if I were running Twitter, I probably would do it. Um, <laughs> but 
the outrage would will be immense. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll we'll look to people who are currently in the room live in the chat. We'll start with a question from Leon, who asks, knowing Trump, what do you believe sets him apart from all other politicians in terms of accountability? Any other politician that got caught in the Access Hollywood tape, Stormy Daniels scandal, uh, tax fraud, uh, John McCain attacks and attacking top military and intelligence community, et cetera, would lose broad support? Well, I think the thing that, there are two things that set him apart. One is that, um, to quote a statement he made to me, I don't respect most people because most people aren't worthy of respect. So he doesn't, he doesn't obey the rules. He, he doesn't believe in respecting um, the normal processes of society. He's, he's antisocial, you know? So that's one thing that he's established. And the, the, the follow-on to that is that he's entirely authentic and consistent where that persona is con concerned. So if you're a horrible person and you go around being a horrible person all of the time, then you can say that I'm really honest. And so then you present yourself to the world as the one truly honest man because you're so willing to be so disgusting. And then when anybody else makes one mistake, you know, so this will be a thing that he'll do. You know, the New York Times will make an error and then uh, publish a correction. And he'll say, well, who are they to criticize me? They're making mistakes all the time. Just look at their own newspaper. You know, so he's set up this dynamic that is dependent on his authenticity being the main thing that he sells to the world and that he is authentically horrible and people love it. They relish that. You know, when he ran a casino in Atlantic City and was going through this, this terrible um, tabloid sex scandal, his executives went to him and said, you know, could you get off the front pages of the tabloids for a few days because we're worried about what it's going to do to our brand? You know, a lot of our customers are men who are going to come gamble here and their wives won't let them have anything to do with the name Trump. And his response was, I'm going to be on the front page of the tabloid more because those guys envy me the freedom to be as terrible as I am. And they want to be me. So this is something he's done for decades and it works for him. And I, I think that's almost a perfect seg uh, to David's question, which is, do you think that supporters or followers of Trump are somehow defective or flawed? Uh, you know, I, th I think some are, some aren't. I think some followers of Barack Obama are defective and flawed. I mean, there is um, so much danger in um, trying to evaluate an entire movement. And I, I think that overall, there is a, a problem with supporting an authoritarian who is willing to attack our democratic principles and structure in order to wield power. So yes, I think that there's a number of flaws and a number of problems that people have when they're willing to see past how awful Trump is and vote for him anyway. Um, but I suspect there are also a lot of people who are genuinely distressed and they feel like America is in a state of emergency and maybe 
Well, I think this is especially true that they've seen themselves falling in status, um, losing security for 20 or 30 years. You know, Bernie Sanders ran for president basically on the argument that working people haven't gained a penny in wealth and income when adjusted for inflation since the 1980s. And I think that there are lots of people who feel that and for whom it's extremely painful and for whom the system as is does not work. Yeah. So I don't know that you're that everyone who voted for Trump was flawed in, in taking a flyer and voting for him. I think now that they saw what a conflagration he made of our society to, to do it one more time, you know, that that's <laughs> that's impressive. <laughs> But I, I don't I don't know how to label it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's tricky to label. Um, Cynthia asks, have Trump's arguments made it impossible for progressives to push Joe Biden for progressive policies without Democrats in total looking bad? Well, that's a game that um, is played in politics always. So, you know, the the game has always been on the right to identify all uh, progressives as communists and socialists, and to then say that if Biden has anything to do with them, then he's a communist and socialist too. And on the far left, you can say, well, you know, um, everybody who's a Republican is on a continuum that eventually leads to fascism. And so that's always unfair. And I, I think Democrats understand this and, and they are already having these battles. But I do think that within the party on as a whole, um, what I'm hearing from people is that they're completely exhausted with fighting, uh, having fought to get rid of Trump. There's been a, a real concern that they lost a lot of House seats and did not take the Senate. and it seems that that might be because a lot of voters preferred divided government and may have been afraid of uh, the democratic progressive brand. So I suspect there's gonna be a lot of incrementalism, that there'll be symbolic um, gestures with um, the people who fill the cabinet and with certain proposals that Biden makes, but it's going to be a very quiet, period for at least two years. Um, so, and I think that progressives understand this, you know, that the ones that I know in Congress are not very eager to give Biden a hard time um, and may wait until after the next midterm. Wow. Michael, Sarah asks, what do you think Trump TV would look like if it becomes a reality? And what would its impact be on the current media landscape is Trump's goal purely to shore up plans to run again in 2024? Well, I don't think that his plan is purely to shore up his plans to run for 2024. I actually am doubtful when it comes to the idea that he'll really follow through and mount a campaign. Um, he'll be pushing 80 by then. I think that um, the the prospect of running and maybe losing a third time, you know, mm -hmm. everyone forgets that he lost the popular vote the first time. Uh, and and his loss in the popular vote count was double what it was in 2016 in November. 
So I think that's a big risk for him to actually follow through and run. So I think what he's imagining is a subscriber television type operation that might be all delivered over the internet. Um, I think that he could easily raise half a billion dollars a year by doing this. Um, if you think of his 75 million voters as potential subscribers, he doesn't have to charge them very much to get to that half a billion dollar a year point. And I think that the broadcast would be organized probably around a, a nightly lineup that would be uh, Donald Trump and Donald Trump Jr. Uh, maybe Donald Trump Jr. would do the lead-in show for the nightly broadcast of what Trump wants to rant and rave about. I think during the day that they would have some programming, you know, this this might not be a a 12-hour schedule or 24-hour schedule of programs, but I don't think it would be hard for them to find lots of people who can do a passable job of a show on TV talking about things, presenting pseudo news. Um, and if he doesn't do it online, it may be something that he does in conjunction with the One America News Network, where I think there's already folks there who would like to have him be part owner. Um, so I am bullish on Trump TV. I think that there will be something like it. Um, the only thing that could interrupt it is um, Rupert Murdoch, I know, is concerned about competing with Trump in the evening and may consider giving him a show of some sort in combination with a book deal. And if he gave Trump 75 to $100 million for that kind of arrangement, Trump would exceed the fee paid to Barack Obama for his books and his competitive streak would be satisfied there, and that he wouldn't have to go through the hassle of building his own network. But one way or another, I think we're gonna to have to deal with him on some platform. Yeah, I think that's a certainty. <laughs> <laughs> and in closing, we will end with a question from Gene, who asks, Michael, how relieved will you be on January 20th? <laughs> Very, very relieved. <laughs> there were a few days after the election where it really felt like um, the, a weight had been taken off my shoulders, but I, I don't think that I'm alone. I think that there's 250 million Americans probably who felt like that, you know, men, women, and children, uh, people around the world felt relieved to know that America was on its way to uh, different type of leadership and a return to something normal. Um, you know, it has, for me personally, it's been a very strange five or six years because I started writing about Trump in 2014 and um, no project I ever took up absorbed this much of my time and effort and um, was so much a part of my own identity. And it'll be really, nice to <laughs> not open emails with people screaming at me and uh, describing the ways they want to dismember me and uh, to not be afraid of you know confronting being confronted by people even when I leave the house so 
yeah, it's a big relief to have this be over and uh, return to a quieter book writing life. Well, thank you. Um, we're looking forward to your next projects. We, we, <laughs> we've, we've been following your stories for a very long time, and I, I too look for a time after that. I also recognize too that returning to normal is what brought us Trump, so we do have to kind of find new normal that's not the one that opens the door to populism in that way. Uh, so there's work to be done. So there, what comes next is like a, a real, a lot of work, I think. I think we all have a lot to do. And I think one of the things I admire about you most and, and we talk about is that books create context for understanding and writing to the extent in which you've written has given us a lot of color and understanding. And I think it's really important to keep doing that. But I also know that to evolve within the new media structures is also really important too. reach new audiences in digital media find new ways of bringing text and information to people and, and make them feel welcome to it and make them feel proud of understanding. So I think I, I appreciate your work in doing that as well and the, the many methods in which you've done it. So thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thank you. It really was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this special presentation of What Comes Next, featuring Michael D'Antonio. Follow Michael on Twitter at mbdantonio and make sure to check out his new book, High Crimes, The Corruption, Impunity, and Impeachment of Donald Trump, available at your favorite local bookseller today. We'll be back next week featuring a conversation between Jamie and Raphael Zaki. Stay safe, everybody.